0: This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. This week, Meg is joined by Christopher Glasick, who wrote a powerful story in Esquire about the family who has made billions off of OxyContin, even as America spiraled into an opioid crisis. It's a different way to look at a story that's been covered a lot over the last year and one that's very much in the news as Donald Trump officially announced an opioid crisis on Thursday.
1: The story really tells the, uh, the story of the Sackler family who are three brothers from Brooklyn who were born in the 19-teens uh, who first kind of made their name. The patriarch of the family, Arthur Sackler, made his name in pharmaceutical advertising, and uh, he actually devised the advertising strategy for Valium in the 1960s, which was the family's first big influx of cash because he made it the most widely prescribed drug in America, uh, the first to reach more than $100 million in sales. And uh, his younger relatives uh, ended up inventing and selling Oxycontin and uh, made Oxycontin uh, one of the most the best-selling drugs of all time.
2: Tying that to today, what has been their role in the current opioid crisis that's, you know, plaguing the U.S.?
1: Well, OxyContin plays a starring role in in the prescription drug epidemic. And, you know, the point I get it to in the piece is that Purdue Pharma, the SACRAS company, they own 100 percent, really made this market. They kind of uh, blazed the trail and uh, introduced strong, long-acting opioid treatment to millions and millions of patients that might not otherwise have gotten it, because previously those kind of drugs were only given to terminally ill cancer patients.
2: Up until recently, this hasn't really been part of the, the, the coverage of the opioid crisis how did you start connecting the dots between this specific family and what's happening in the U.S. today?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I mean, I think the first time the family came on my radar was when they were added to the Forbes list of richest families. They hadn't been on the Forbes list for years and years uh, because there's 20 heirs, and, and Forbes only recently created a, a richest families list to complement its richest individuals list. Um, even then, on the first the first year that Forbes did the list, they did not list the Sacklers. They kind of flew under the radar. Uh, then the second year, they kind of said, oh, whoops, we missed a really, really big one. <laughs> this family actually has $14 billion, more than the Melons, more than the Rockefellers, more than the Fords. Um, and it, it basically all comes from Oxycontin. Uh, then in 2016, the LA Times did this really phenomenal three-part investigation of Purdue Pharma, that the Sacklers Pharmaceutical Company. Um, kind of uh, exposing a a number of different shady business practices. Uh, The last part of that series focused on uh, the company's international activities. So Purdue has these sister companies that are are overseas that are not formally connected to Purdue necessarily, but they're also owned by the Sacklers. So the Sacklers are kind of mentioned here and there in that investigative series, and that kind of caused me to wonder why haven't we heard about them before Uh, because we'd really heard so much about Purdue, about, about their company, and, you know, back in 2007, uh, there was this giant federal settlement with the company where the company actually had to plead guilty to criminal charges. And three of its top executives went down. The executives themselves had to plead guilty to criminal charges, which is very, very rare. Uh, Purdue's executives actually did have to plead guilty to criminal charges. They didn't go to jail. But no family members were named in that suit. And so th- mm-hmm. that kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit, too. And I started looking around and see, well, h- how involved was, you know, I kind of assumed, well, maybe the family was kind of these passive Owners, they didn't really have anything to do with it. That's how people describe the Mars candy heirs, for instance. Um, and the more I looked into it, I, I uh, you know discovered that was not the case at all. That the family was very actively involved, actually in managing the company's day to day affairs, particularly during the OxyContin period.
2: I mean, they, they've done such a good job at separating the family name from the drug itself. Like, how do you think they were able to do that for so long, for decades?
1: Right. I mean, so you know, one really fateful decision that they made was to not name their company after. The family, uh, you know, so Koch brothers have Coke Industries. Uh, the Sacklers had, uh, you know, had controlled numerous companies, kind of secretly in the in the fifties and sixties. And uh, you know, one of the companies they bought was this already existing pharmaceutical company called Purdue Frederick, which was like founded in the eighteen nineties. And when they bought it, it was really this kind of hollowed out financial shell, but they never put their name on it. And you know, that that was kind of their their engine uh, for. Uh, this what, what became this enormous fortune from selling painkillers.
2: And so you mentioned that you, you you've you heard whispers of their names both in Forbes and the LA Times. But when did you start actively kind of reporting out this story for Esquire?
1: I was first interested in looking at the international operations. And I talked to my editor at Esquire about it. And you know, he was really interested in going after the family. He, he had really wanted me to write about the Mercers, actually. Um, and that was something I you know, knew some, some other people were working on, so I, I backed away from it. Uh, so the Sacklers were kind of like uh, next up. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Also, I mean, I should say also I have friends whose who's art... I, I have left friends in the art world. I've written a lot about the art world, so the Sackler name is huge in the art world, and I know people connected to various Sackler entities, and, and I have friends whose work has been bought and collected by Sackler family members. I had never known... That those Sacklers who endowed all these museum wings, um, you, you know, and, and were these huge collectors were the same Sacklers that uh, owned Purdue and sold Oxycontin. But that quickly became apparent while while doing my research.
2: How long in total were you working on the version you ultimately published in, in Esquire?
1: Well, I, I mean, from start to finish, it was about five months.
2: Changing gears a little bit, but I, I also wanted to talk to you about kind of the structure of the piece. Um, you know, you started the piece at the Sackler Courtyard in London's Victoria and Albert Museum, mm-hmm. uh, and then you kind of list some other institutions in its portfolio. Why did you make that choice?
1: Obviously, the headline of the piece and the deck and everything makes clear that it's about OxyContin. But but I, I thought that you know a, a good way into the mystery of this family would be to uh, look at all the places where they publicly appear. Because you know the irony of the Sacklers is they're extraordinarily public about some things and they're extraordinarily private about other things. Um, And and I wanted to kind of flesh out this uh, concept of this family that was so ultra elite that it had braided its name throughout all the most patrician institutions in the world. You know, the Louvre, the Tate, the Met, um, you know, virtually every Ivy League university has a Sackler Institute or a Sackler Gallery. I I wanted to kind of, uh, you know, show the gleaming, glittering side of the Sackler name uh, and then kind of... uh, proceed to trace the origins of of that fortune in in a darker way.
2: How did you determine the rest of the structure, um, you know, given the amount of material you were working with? You know, there was, I mean, obviously, uh, one-on-one interviews with former employees, different memos, court records, even Facebook, uh, you mentioned as a a way to uh, look at one of the Sacklers, I forget which, uh, Richard? Richard. Richard Sackler. Um, So how did you, how did you go about kind of? collating all of that together?
1: Well, it was really difficult. I mean, I think I wrote probably like 16,000 words and ended up publishing about 8, 8,000. So, um, you know, it was a tremendous process of culling. And, you know, and there was even more that I didn't write that I, that I, that I could have written. Um, and, you know, it was, it was basically, I don't know that it was super um, uh, planned in advance. I mean, it just kind of went through drafts and I had a great editor, um, Eric Sullivan at, at Esquire, uh, I should say also that that you know, and this is unique in my journalistic career. You know, I've written for the New Yorker, I've written for The New York Times Magazine, I've written for you know, a, I mean, a million different places. This is the first time that a magazines actually uh, given me like real research help, and Esquire was excellent about making you know mostly interns available, but who you know, I interns went to uh, courthouses to take photos of court documents for me with their iPhone. <laughs> I mean, feel so badly for them, but you know, they, I mean, like literally, some kid. Took like a hundred and forty iPhone photos of documents that couldn't be removed from the wow. courthouse, you know. And we actually didn't end up using any of those. But, but
2: it's nice to have that.
1: Yeah. No. Well. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's not that necessarily that you know most of that research didn't really end up making the piece, but but uh, it it saved me the trip, and and you know, and I then ultimately discovered that stuff wasn't quite so useful. I think my first version of the piece. Um, we started with the 2000 federal settlement, 2007 federal settlement, which took you know, which was uh, announced in this courthouse in Appalachia in southwestern Virginia when these three rich executives from suburban Connecticut uh, went down and had to plead guilty to these criminal charges. I, I mean, I think my editors thought that it didn't work as well. That it'd be better to start in the present day. Um, you know, there was some decision about which Sackler, you know which endowed wing at which museum to choose. Um, so the the Victoria and Albert had just been installed. It, it, when I you know it, when we finished the piece, that was the case. Actually, like you know a week after close, there was a giant reopening of the Freer Sackler in Washington D.C., which you know might have been an even more current and you know less transatlantic. Example to choose. I should note that you know a very helpful source for, for me and you know for everybody's writing about uh, Purdue and the Sacklers is, is Barry Mayer, this amazing investigative reporter from the New York Times. Wrote a book in two thousand three called Painkiller, which was uh, included some extensive material about the Sacklers. It was really kind of the only um, real uh, published sources about Sackler stuff.
2: The piece relies a lot on historic detail. Um, and so I'm just curious, like how did you how did you approach that reporting? Did you rely heavily on kind of pre-existing reports from yeah. like, Painkiller and other Well, so Painkiller sources? didn't talk that
1: much about the Met. I guess it did a little bit. Um I mean the uh, so Thomas Hoving, who was the director of the Met wrote a memoir. And so so the Arthur Sackler, you know, who died in 1987, there, there really were quite a, – a, there is quite a lot of printed material about him. And, and he kept a regular column and this – you know, he, he, he controlled these publications and was, was quite a, a public person in some ways. He was very private about some aspects of his career. But so he was a huge force in the art world and he had been profiled a couple times. And so there, there was a bit of material about Arthur Sackler and, and the kind of story of his relationship with the Met, something had been told in several different places. It was always a question how much we wanted to focus on people who were dead, and, and then how much we wanted to focus on people who were alive. And there's a lot. There's a lot more to Arthur's backstory that we could have included. Its connection to oxycotton is, you know, not as direct as, as, as some other things. You know, I mean, the really hard stuff was I was finding the employees. You know, I mean, that, that that was that took up, you know, a lot of time. Um, and and I think we got some really interesting, great stuff from them.
2: I'm curious uh, how willing, if any were members of the Sackler family um, you know, to, to talk to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, incredibly unwilling. I mean, I, I reached out to many different members of the Sackler family over many months through different intermediaries, and um, they basically all said no. So I, I, I was able eventually to talk to some members of the family who uh, were divested from Oxycontin. So basically one of the brothers' heirs, when, when Arthur Sackler died, his estate was bought out by the other two brothers, The the, the Purdue portion was. So his children... Uh, never ha- and his widow uh, never had any were never enriched by the oxycotton money and that so, was
2: elizabeth sackler elizabeth yeah.
1: sackler who's well known who who um you know is very progressive and she founded the center for feminist art the brooklyn museum um and then also jillian sackler who's arthur's widow um you know they, so they they both wanted to make clear that that you know that they had nothing to do with oxycotton and you know did not support it
2: and I'm also curious about um, your decision to end the piece the way that you did. Near the end, you write something like, "The Sacklers will likely emerge from the opioid epidemic untouched." Why do you think that is? And I guess, you know, what were you hoping this story would accomplish?
1: Yeah. Well. Um, so you know, I mean, whether they, w- you know, we, I think we, we had a different version that said that they probably won't emerge untouched. You know, <laughs> so I mean, I've, I heard different things from different lawyers, and even different things from the same lawyer. Um, y- The the general sense I got is that it was unlikely the plaintiff's lawyers are going to go after the family personally. That calculus might change now that there's all these pieces about the Sacklers. Um, But, uh, you know, what I basically heard from lawyers was that they're looking for deep pockets and these lawsuits, you know, name not only Purdue, but also these huge opioid manufacturers that kind of got in the game after Purdue. You know, Purdue kind of made the market and everyone else feasted on the carcass. So they basically said there's plenty of deep pockets to go around here. We don't want to like we don't need to complicate things by going after the family, which could be difficult in all kinds of ways. But you know, I mean, Paul Hanley did tell me, as he also told the New Yorker, that you know, if if there's a hundred billion dollar judgment against Purdue, if Purdue goes bankrupt, then they might start looking at the Sackler fortune and they might start trying to assess, in particular, did the Sacklers extract money from the company during the period that was under investigation? Because that would be fraudulent transfer. Something you said earlier about focusing on on people who are still living, you know, I mean, we initially had much more material about Sackler heirs that we kind of ended up cutting out um, partially for space. But it also does kind of go to this question of of complicity and responsibility. And if you're a third generation Sackler heir, and let's say you're a filmmaker or you're a restaurateur or you're kind of a a philanthropist, you know, I mean, what connection do you have to Oxycontin? What burden do you have? Um, Do you need to make a statement about it? Uh, You know, I think I think it's complicated I, I um you know the same kind of goes for these institutions that have received Sackler money if you're Columbia University or your Tufts University or your Yale University, uh, you know, what are the kind of stakes of the complicity question there? And you know i I, I think it's complex. i i what I do know is that you know that the answer to that question cannot just be secrecy and you know, putting our head in the sand ostrich like and and denying that there's any issue. You know money can be given in different spirits. so, if the Sacklers fund a rehabilitation center because they feel sorry for what has happened, uh, you know, I don't think anyone would um, object to the Sackler name being put on that. As it happens, the Sacklers, have, have, uh, as far as I have been able to find, have donated not a single dime to any addiction clinics or addiction research. Um, and, you know, and I asked you know, their, their PR representatives, and they were unable to provide a single example of that, even though they've given you know, million, hundreds of millions to other institutions. So, you know, I I think that there's all kinds of ways that the Sackler name can continue to support arts and education uh, in a way that doesn't seem like a lie or a dodge. But to get there, the Sacklers actually need to come forward and say something, I think. And, and, you know, they they continue to refuse to go on the record. And, you know, it's a strategy that's worked really well for them for 20 years. But um, I, I wonder whether that calculus might change.
0: All right, as we get into this week's news, Meg and I are joined by CJR senior editor Christy Chisholm. Christy, welcome back.
3: It's nice to be back.
0: And there's really only one story dominating the conversation around media this week. Before we get into that, I want to give a little bit of the backstory. On Wednesday night, CNN's Oliver Darcy reported that five women had accused Mark Halperin, a well-known political journalist, of sexual harassment back when he worked at ABC News. Darcy's story came a few days after The New York Times' Emily Steele and Michael Schmidt reported on yet another settlement by Fox News' Bill O'Reilly. And all of this is coming in a month in which Harvey Weinstein has been accused by over 50 women of offenses ranging from inappropriate comments to rape. So, Meg, people have been talking about the Weinstein effect. Do you see that playing out? Have we reached a point where there's going to be a sea change in different industries, whether it's media or otherwise?
2: I think it's it's too soon to tell. I think um, there's definitely been like a, a ripple effect from the Weinstein coverage, um, both in entertainment, Hollywood industry, but also in our own industry, journalism and media. Um, and I, I think the floodgates have definitely opened as a result of Weinstein and the subsequent kind of creation of the shitty media men list, which for those that don't know what that is, it was an anonymous Google spreadsheet that allowed women in journalism to kind of list men who allegedly sexually harassed or assaulted uh, women in journalism, you know, and and since that list was kind of spread around the internets, the list kind of has now has served for fodder um, for further investigations and looks into um, the people on the list. So even though the list, you know, itself can be legally and ethically kind of weird, it has kind of served as a starting place for media organizations to kind of look into conduct of their own employees. And one of the big stories that broke this week was of the accusations against Leon Wieseltier, formerly of the New Republic, um, also was a contributing editor to The Atlantic. And I think this next week was supposed to publish a new magazine called Idea. Um, And Michael Calderon from Politico and, and Jason Schwartz, his colleague, uh, broke the story earlier this week about the allegations against Leon and there was a whole email chain from women at the New Republic uh, where they shared kind of the abuses that they had encountered with Leon while he was at the New Republic.
3: I mean I think what I don't know I think everything that's come out in the last couple of weeks uh, with Halperin and Weaselteer. I think that what's like I don't know coming on the aftermath of this list being published and the aftermath of Weinstein I mean, yeah. Like to go back to your question, Pete. You know, is it a sea change? I wish it was. I like. I wish it were. Like, was a sea change? I. I am skeptical that it is. I worry that this is just another. Look, like a year ago, pretty much exactly, we were also kind of, at least as a nation and culturally, in an uproar about the Axis Hollywood tapes that had come out, showing that like Trump obviously had these like attitudes towards women that. A lot of men in powerful positions have toward women, even men in not so powerful positions. A lot of attitudes that men, period, have toward women. So, you know, that tape came out. And we thought, like, for sure that was going to be the end of his candidacy. There was no way that people were going to elect him. And uh, a year later, here we are. And he is our president and whatever, all the stuff that comes along with that. So outrage is one thing. Change is another But progress that is actually happening right now as a result of these lists is that there are people, these organizations, who are now taken out of the position where they can hurt and offend other women. So that's like actual change. That's something. How long that lasts is another question.
2: I think that's a really great point. It's like the tumors are being removed, but has the did the cancer spread? Oh God, kind of thing. You know, it's like that's how I think about it. It's like yeah, I think of like these guys being removed as like the tumor in the organization. But like, is it too late? Absolutely. Well, that's like to
3: take the metaphor even further, right? Like, it's like, you know, has the cancer already metastasized? It doesn't even quite work that way, because more it's like these men are, are products of the environment. So it's not like this one nasty, tumorous cell or whatever that grew and expanded and now is infecting other people. It's just like this is just a culture that breeds that kind of behavior. So are we changing the culture? Or are we just pinpointing these people who have offended us already and taking them out of the newsroom and saying, all right, now the problem is fixed. You're welcome, ladies. Like, that's not actually the way that it works. So what are we really going to do about it? Everyone has hashtag me too. People are talking about, like, how this is a problem beyond media, beyond entertainment, beyond Wall Street, beyond. It's everywhere. Any woman who is listening to this has a million stories. Any man who is listening to this knows a woman who has a million stories has probably heard some stories himself.
2: Yeah, I think I think just like the biggest takeaway from all of this has been like it's a starting place. Like the conversation is finally happening in, you know, more mainstream news organizations instead of just like, you know, on Jezebel, which is where these stories have been covered before. None of these things should come as a surprise, like the allegations against Vox or like Barstool Sports or like any of these vice media, like any of these organizations that have had reputation in the past for, you know, their sexist comments or, you know, cultural misogyny. Um, this has been something that's been part of the conversation, maybe more offline or through these like whisper networks for a long time. But I think the one promising thing about all of this is that, you know, you now have the New York Times covering these things.
3: Now, I think that right now it's like we, we're in a moment, right? And people have written about that, like this is a moment. And people either think it's like a moment of sea change or just like a moment in like a vacuum and it's going to disappear and like whatever. But we are in a moment. People are listening. People are paying attention. And some people are taking action. So now is the time to try to enact meaningful change in policy. You have people's attentions. People believe you when you say that you have been harassed, when you say that there is a culture that like promotes this in every workplace <laughs> everywhere. So rather than seeking out all of the offenders and then forgetting about it, I mean, continue to seek out and be aware of offenders. But beyond that, the questions to ask yourself um, if you work in the media or if you work anywhere else and you are in a position to help influence policy at your workplace, what kind of policy do you have in place in your job? What kind of HR programs do you have? What kind of you know, support do you have for people who need to report assault or harassment? What support and resources do you provide the members of your staff? Who might go through something like this, and then what kind of training do you provide? And, you're, and there are a million questions, but again, it goes down to that issue of policy. Don't get angry and fire someone and forget about it. Think about how you can actually help prevent this from happening and help educate people.
2: So it's about you know approaching it in a comprehensive, nuanced way. And you know, we've I think I, I'm optimistic in terms of just the, the coverage of the last year. I think we've gotten infinitely better at covering sexual harassment, sexual assault in the media. Um, And I think the next step is for us to kind of look inward at ourselves and and ourselves, meaning, you know, journalists.
0: So given that we are in something of a watershed moment, if not the beginning of a sea change, but also with the knowledge that we've been through Bill Cosby and the first round of Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes. And as you mentioned, Christy, Donald Trump. Do you guys feel more optimistic than you did a month ago?
2: It's like a weird combination of optimism and disgust. I would, I don't know. Optimistic
3: isn't the word that I would use. Yeah. Everyone, everyone is different, and the way they talk about this stuff is different. You know, whatever. So for me, like talking about assault and harassment and issues that women face in the workplace and life and whatever, that's something that I try to do. I myself have been harassed and assaulted, and I've written about these things, you know, many times, and I'm 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 pretty open about my own experiences. You know, a lot of those conversations, like I write about it and then I kind of send it out into the ether and then that's it. And when I really talk about it, it's with people who are close to me in my life. And I think that a lot of women, if they talk about these things at all, that's probably with people who are close to them in their lives. So to see a lot of these stories, these experiences put out in a very public way, and to see so many women coming forward and doing that, it gives me admiration for those women. And it, I guess it makes me feel... It's not like pride or whatever, but there's something about, you know, women who haven't told stories like that publicly feeling like they can now. There's something that is empowering about that. And that some, there's something in that that does feel different, perhaps. It is sad, too, because it's a reminder just how it's everywhere. And what keeps getting me is that, that still there are so many people, men specifically, online and elsewhere or whatever, who seem, like, surprised by this, like...
0: Um, by the prevalence of it?
3: Yeah, just by the, the the sheer volume of women who are communicating these stories and people who are, like, surprised or saddened or whatever. And it's like, you know what, if, you know, if you're listening right now um, <laughs> and you are surprised or saddened by this reaction that you've seen all of these women have to these allegations and, you know, whatever, everything that's happened in the past month, if you were surprised and saddened by it. If you're a man who's concerned, you're like, oh, this is terrible. All of these women, oh my God, I had no idea. Well, first of all, open your eyes because how did you have no idea? And second of all, like, this is where it comes back to the idea of policy and education. What are you going to do about it? So this is really sad. So if you're in a position of power... What are you going to do to actually help make a difference?
2: Yeah, I think that brings up two things I want to touch on, which was Huffington Post did a kind of a, a look at the New Republic um, and talked to a bunch of, I think, men who are, had been working in the office during the whole Leon period and talking about how, like, you know, they wish they had said something and blah, 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 which is all fine and dandy. But, like, what are you going to do about it now, I think, is the important part. Like, if you if that were to happen in front of you now in a newsroom, how would you react and, like, what would be your like, how would you step in, right? And then the other thing was, there was a really great piece on Deadspin. Uh, Drew McGarry wrote about reckoning with his own online past as a man. And he used to write things that were pretty problematic, um, very sexist and misogynist. And this whole incident has made him kind of look inward at himself and his and his past coverage. And I think it's important for male journalists to to think about how they can do better in their own coverage, um, but also as people and as colleagues. And, yeah. and
3: certainly if you're
2: in management in a
3: newsroom, You really have a huge responsibility um, in terms of making sure that your staff has the support and resources that they need.
0: Right. So in terms of thinking about this going forward, as this story progresses, I expect that we're going to see more names come out. And that's certainly part of journalists' jobs going forward is to tell these stories and to figure out what has happened in the past, what's going on continuously. What other things can journalists or media organizations do to make sure these situations don't occur. And I'm thinking specifically about in our own industry. And one of the things that comes up, you mentioned leadership, looking at the mastheads of a lot of news organizations, there's an issue there.
2: I think masthead, yeah, totally important. But I also think newsrooms, regardless of size, need to think about the kind of systematic process for addressing these types of issues in the newsroom. So like if you were in BuzzFeed, how would you go about reporting an instance of sexual harassment or assault and like making it transparent and accessible to empower people to report something that happened to them if they if they feel like that's the right path for them. Newsrooms need to think about how they can better institutionally address these things. Something also that really um,
3: stands out to me about this kind of, you know, whatever moment that we're in is that journalism is all about seeking truth. And it's about not being afraid to communicate that truth to the wider audience of the world. So it says something when you're talking about women who are journalists, who are in this position, who who've devoted their lives and their careers to helping to expose like wrongdoing and like secret and whatever, who still feel afraid or intimidated or ashamed or whatever it may be all of those things other things to name these people who have harassed and abused them in their own workplace i mean it really says something about how difficult it is for women to speak up or anyone to speak up and it just is usually women to speak up in these situations because you get people who like who know how to speak up who care a hell of a lot about it and still have a really hard time i can say that in my experience It's been a hell of a lot easier to talk about harassment that I've faced by people I didn't know that, you know, like a creep broke into my home in the middle of the night and attacked me and tried to rape me while I was sleeping. And I fought him off and I got away. And that's a hard thing to talk about. But it's a hell of a lot easier for me to talk about that strange man who I was able to escape from um, than it is to talk about harassment that I've faced in the workplace. And I have not faced any harassment at all in my current workplace. But when I was starting out in journalism and before journalism, hell yeah, I have faced a lot of it. I think a lot of, I think all women do at some point. It's hard to talk about that stuff. And I just, I just, I think it's worth putting out there that like, it's just, if it's that hard for women who work in this industry, who, who have been taught to speak out and speak up, just think about how hard it is for women who, don't work in industries that hold you know those kinds of ideals like so loudly and proudly
0: that was our show thanks for kicking it with us i want to thank chris glasic for coming in to talk about his excellent piece for esquire we'll put up a link to the story in our show notes and then i want to thank my colleagues meg and christy for being here to talk through a really difficult but a really important topic so thank you guys for being here and thank you all for listening we'll see you next week